Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Dr. Mark Hutchinson of the University of Göttingen. His paper was entitled Inverting Resistance Theory in the State in Elizabethan Ireland. To begin with, what I want to pose is a, is a quite a broad question and then narrow it down. Why did a set of English Reformed Protestants involved in Irish government, Henry Sidney, his son Philip, um, Lord Deputy Arthur Gray and John Perrett, come to adopt an absolutist position on the nature of the prerogative and on sovereign authority in Ireland when their wider Reformed Protestant associates in England and in Europe held to a mixed polity position. What I mean here is that the first sort of absolutist turn in political thought comes from Jean Boudin's Six Books of the Commonwealth, where he defines sovereignty as an indivisible power in relation to Huguenot or Protestant resistance writers in France in order to shut them out of political debate. But why then do um, a set of reformed Protestants in Ireland adopt a constitutional position in terms of taking an absolutist definition of sovereign authority, which is an anathema to their reformed Protestants associates? And this becomes more... um, more emphasized, more emphasized when we look at England, where a notion of a monarchical republic exists, as according to Patrick Collinson, where their contemporaries argued that they had a series of constitu- constitutional rights and mixed polity, where sovereignty existed between lords and commons, and that they also had a local gentry self-governing republics in um, civic states um, in England. Now, in answering this question, I want to narrow it down and look at a definition between political liberty and Christian liberty, in the sense that Marco Peltonen and others within England take a particular secular definition of political liberty or active citizenship, that it exists of a series of constitutional and customary rights which give the gentry the right to participate actively in political life, and that within the context of continental Europe for Skinner, Quentin Skinner and others, this... um, this idea um, comes to the fore within political debate because it's precipitated by the necessity to argue for freedom of worship um, and for freedom of religion. But um, that a notion of Christian liberty, whereby through the action of God's grace and conscience for Lutheran Calvin, we are redeemed from sin and therefore have some sort of conformity of godly action, that this is something that is distinct from a notion of political liberty and should be kept separate. But what I want to argue is that a notion of political liberty and a notion of Christian liberty within how English civic republicans talk are actually elided together and are not completely distinct, and that the reason why then um, reformed Protestants in Ireland come to adopt an absolutist position is because they don't feel that Christian liberty is present, so they don't feel that political liberty is viable, so they're not that peculiar. Now, why bother to talk about Ireland within a wider English or a wider European frame? And I think, it's, I think because Ireland has a 
constitutional example in terms of the state or condition of the Irish polity allows us to see a third definition of political liberty emerging. What I mean here, I take a very different stance from Brendan Bradshaw and from Nicholas Canney in arguing that a Protestant evangelism was actually a very viable tenant within Ireland, that they didn't outrightly condemn the Irish or the Old English as unreformable, but looked to God's word and the action of God's grace to reform society. The only problem was that they never actually got the financial resources necessary to construct that preaching ministry. And as a result, what you see in Ireland is a pejorative term of political liberty emerging where it expresses a sense of licentiousness, of sin, of a willful condition whereby you're not able to act well, and that that helps us clarify a distinction within wider English and European political philosophy. Then, posing the final question, which I will sort of move to at the end, is how then did a notion of political liberty emerge eventually that was separate from a notion of Christian liberty. And hopefully I will reach the end at some point and I will be able to address that in some way. And the particular figures I want to look at here is briefly some resistance theorists, John Ponnet and then Christopher Goodman who served as Henry Sidney's chaplain from 1565 to 1571 in Ireland. Then to move on briefly to look at John Hooker who wrote um, The Order and Usage um, of an English Parliament but he wrote it in Ireland, was a civic republican in England but more of an absolutist in an Irish context. What that reveals a little bit looking at Spencer and then to uh, conclusion will Spencer be mixed in. So in looking at John Ponnet's resistant treatise, a short treatise of political power written in 1556 and in Christopher Goodman's offering How Superior Powers Ought to be Obeyed written in 1558 and these are written in a context outside Ireland against um, Mary Tudor's rule arguing that Protestants should actively resist this rule. We can see initially the blurring of these definitions of liberty in their pamphlets. For Ponnet, in discussing the position of inferior magistrates, so a constitutional idea of political liberty, argues that they are ordained to see that kings should not oppress the people, arguing that they should defend and maintain the liberty of the people so the rulers cannot rule according to their lusts. And here, liberty in this regard is conceived partly in constitutional terms, where political authority is distributed throughout the political community, but also in Christian terms, where lust or the unreformed desires of the ruler are at issue. And this elision is more explicit in Ponnet's final exhortation, calling for England to return to God, where he argues that notions of tyranny are both political and spiritual, it's sort of the other side to liberty. The term is applied both to the Roman Church and to foreign government, which was the result from Mary's marriage to Philip of Spain. So it's, the liberty is means both self-government and the free worship of the true Christ. And similarly, Goodman shifts between both terms, calling for the liberty of Jesus Christ in our consciences, whereby the loss of liberty assured by God's word arises when the community refuses to participate in political life. Now, as a slight aside, Goodman defines true obedience in terms of uh, to God as active resistance in an odd godly context, but civil obedience in a godly context with the context of English rule coming from God's grace and God's word and we actually see the term true obedience being flitted through the um, government correspondence in Ireland in the early 1570s suggesting that this notion of redemption and true obedience is equated with civil obedience is quite viable. But the problem is that there is not a functional Reformation church so that when Irish writers, um, the Old English and New English, begin to talk about notions of political liberty in Ireland, it emerges in the absence of Christian liberty in a very pejorative sense. 
Taking Roland White, an old Englishman who, well, he has some Protestant potentials, but he may be more Erasmian in quality. In talking of the Irishry in, 15, in 1571, so not the old English, he says they cannot be reformed, neither by the correction of one fearing another, nor yet by the subjection, subjection of some procuring the rest to obedience, because they seek out the liberty of their own certain civilities. And read within this context, we have Nicholas Malby, the president of Connet, referring to whereby the lords, in relation to the Clan Ricard Burks, their tyrannous oppressions, which takes on both a spiritual dimension, reflecting both political and spiritual tyranny, which we see in Protestant resistance writing. This is something Roy Rappel has observed, arguing that for military men, blurred distinctions arose between the idea of defending the homeland and freedom against both temporal and spiritual tyranny. And we see this also in Malby's predecessor, Fitton, explaining how seeing the Irish, seeing the princes for slack and understanding Her Majesty and her ministers bent rather to wink at faults than to reform them, they then are bragged to do what they lust, as before it's the uncontrolled, unreformed will, where man lusts after unrivaled licence, and that is what undermines the processes of civil society. And then to just mention Spencer here before then going on to talk about Hooker, who is actually quite essential to the argument. Um, Spencer, I would take Spencer's view as actually having a far larger religious context that in mentioning inappropriated benefices, so the inability to provide financial reform, to provide preachers, that this is actually quite a large context of the view. And this failure to provide godly reform again informs a very pejorative notion of liberty when he talks about the Irish, when Irenaeus, one of the individuals involved in his dialogue, describes how the laws themselves, they, the Irish, do specially rage at and rend in pieces as most repugnant to their liberty and natural freedom, which in their madness they affect. And the position is repeated by his counterpart, Eudoxus, in referring to their refusal to adopt a settled English arable lifestyle, that the poor husbandman like the insecurity of tenure because by his continual liberty of change, he can keep his lord, landlord the rather in awe from wronging him, and then again going on to refer to this liberty as an unreformed will. But it's Hooker that really binds this all together because Hooker sits both within an English context and within an Irish context. Hooker's order and usage of an English parliament is not inspired by an English context at all, but the failure of Sydney's 1569 parliament to actually do anything worthwhile as far as Sydney was concerned. So Hooker feels the need to tell them about the order and usage of how a parliament should operate, but it's a quintessential mixed polity model. It argues that sovereignty clearly rests with the commons and the lords, and he laments the great government of the Spartans of Ephor, inferior magistrates used by Calvin and others to put forward this mixed polity idea in their own resistance theory. And he writes two pamphlets here, one um, in 1572 dedicated to Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam, and one in 1575 dedicated to the chief citizens of his native city of Exeter. But it's within the preface to the English edition that we see the instability in this mixed polity model and this idea of political liberty of a series of constitutional rights allowing for active participation within the political community. We see the potential for its break time. In the English edition, a comparison is made between the different consultative assemblies in Israel, between Solomon's wise and ancient senators and the rash and young councillors of Rohibohim. Hooker asks if those who fear God and hated 
covetousness, uh, direct the people in judgment and govern them in justice, what shall children, young men, as such as neither fear God nor hate iniquity, which are of no experience or knowledge, sit in senate of the wise and give judgment among the grave and learned? Now, this immediately read within an Irish context would suggest that he's questioning at some level whether the Irish Parliament he was sitting in, where they were rash and unreformed and disorderly, whether they are in actual fact the young councillors of Rohabohem. And if this is then read against events in Ireland from 1579 to 1583, where the counter, you have the counter-reformation revolts of the old English lords and the old English gentry, this then further negates the vision of the mixed polity which had emerged in the Irish Parliament of 1569-70, since they had become the equivalent of Rohabohm's councillors. And I think Hooker's own support for Peter Carew in his pursuit of hidden land claims at the expense of the native population may even reflect the beginnings of such a, pop, of such a position where on godliness negates indigenous and native rights. And where we then have what I think then is really very essential to this reading is to look at Hooker's addition to the 1586 um, extension of Holinshed's Irish Chronicle. If we take the first edition, which Steenhurst contributes to, we find a normalised version of an English mixed polity and civic values being discussed. For Steenhurst, the old English community had continued to participate in political life. It emphasises their role in Parliament. It also emphasises the fact that they passed Henry's reforms and the Act of Kingly Title, where you actually see a sense, I think it's ambiguous within um, Steenhurst's account anyway, of whether he's rec- of whether the old English are recognising Henry's authority or in a classic way read against resistance theory, is this an example actually of them passing sovereignty from the polity to the ruler, meaning they can bring it back. But you also see them actively on every occasion participating in civic life and guarding their liberties. But the actual account that Hooker then begins um, from about Edward's reign is one, well, I actually think it's from about Sydney's reign, reign, I mean deputyship, is that he gives an effective account of... Um, of a breakdown in godly order. He actually um, starts with Sydney's um, Articles for Government in 1565, which place um, the um, dissemination of God's word as Article 1. He goes through the problem to reform appropriated benefices and the problem of not being able to make available God's word. And this is set beside um, his eulogy of the first Earl of Essex and of Robert Weston and an account of Sydney's life where they are shown as godly and it's that godliness and the action of grace and conscience which is seen as allowing the godly deputies to participate in political life. But set beside this is an account both in relation to Shane O'Neill, the Earl of Desmond and the Clinical Burks where he mentions their corrupt consciences where their consciences are cauterised and where in their absence of grace he refers to the Clinical Burks as being graceless imps, whereby it's their lack of knowledge of God which makes them act in a way which refers to in terms of their pejorative use of liberty, their wolfiness and their lusting after after disorder and this ungodly freedom, which then falls into a negating of the idea of the mixed polity, especially when it comes to his account of Old English rebellion in the Peel and in the other um, port towns, whereby a counter-reformation tone has arisen. 
what remains actually quite essential here, or the key example, is when he starts is with the citizens of Waterford. Waterford actually representing in English monarchical republican terms actually a very functional civic entity where they've been given a sort of state um, by different kings where Henry II had granted charters and where they have the liberties of importing wine, etc. That this is and mayors and citizens, that this is really a very functional entity. But this but their rights, which Hooker supports in the order and usage and will go on to support in Exeter, in this context becomes negated. On Henry Sidney's arrival when he demands cess, etc., and different reforms, the citizens are accounted explaining no officer, no officer of the kings or queens of England, nor their deputies, shall intermeddle nor exercise any authority nor jurisdiction within the city and liberties, but only the mayor and officers of the same. And Hooker, in response, takes a Bodan-esque position and elaborates on the tentative absolutive tone of previous deputies. Hooker asserts that the prince's authority is unlimited and ordained by God, and scolds the town in its patricians, writing, Compare not your privileges, not with his authority, nor do you dispute your liberties with his prerogative. For notwithstanding your privileges, liberties and grants be great and many, yet they cannot abate nor impugn the least of the prince's prerogative, which is so great as nothing can be greater, if you take the view of God's own ordinances when he first erected and established a king who gave him so high and so absolute authority that, as the apostle saith, it must be with all humbleness obeyed. And then Hooker goes on to talk about the sword of state as a physical manifestation of sovereignty as held by the deputy, which is very different from the idea of sovereignty passing from the wider community to the crown or to the institutions of state, and actually then starts to use the term state to express or to talk about the nature of the political community. Then going on to talk about the pale revolts as well, there's an apocalyptic tone alongside this, but again, their rights and liberties are argued to be negated in this context. And I think what then helps link all of this together is then turning to Hooker's other work, his pamphlet of the office and duties of every particular officer of the city of Exeter, published in 1584. For Marco Pelconin and others, this then is seen as one of the quintessential early expressions of an English civic republicanism or a Ciceronianism, that this is an expression of customary rights, that they are allowed to actively participate in the political community that then feeds into the civil wars, providing this earlier set of, 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 of discourses. And in a particular, within the pamphlet, Hooker outlines a series of offices that the citizens have the right to elect, or the gentry have the right to write various officers so that they can actively participate in life and actively guard their liberties, etc. Um, talking um, about um, the mayor guards and protects the state, of, the state of the city and the liberties of the same, where the steward makes sure true records are kept. But what none of these writers seem to be aware of is that the preface itself argues that all of these liberties sit on top of a godly community. It is argued that the duties of the magistrates concerned in the first place God and his service and religion, the other concerning yourselves and your office in public government, the latter dependeth upon the first. The preface then stresses how the citizens do not attend church to hear sermons, but spend their days most licentiously in sin and wickedness, where the fault is no one, a redress is wished, but nothing is done. 
The point for Hooker is that the city's liberties and the mixed polity are in danger and undermined when godly responsibilities are not fulfilled, because at the moment, he writes, the ship of your commonwealth being overladen with sin and iniquity is a great danger of shipwreck. And the consequences of such situation, if we read it against the Irish context, have been realised in his account of Irish civic life in Holinshed. So just one quote from Paris, and then I move to a conclusion. So in this context, we then see this being outlined vocally in Irish government correspondence when Parrott then addresses his 1586 Parliament, um, where his attempt both to um, further religious reformation, well, understandably his attempt to institute penal laws, and as well as attempt for to get government finances is um, rejected. And in this context, Parrott takes a number of absolute step-breaking parliamentary liberty to some um, the, some of the members of the Commons um, to the Council Board to examine them under oath. Um, and in relation to that, he's also, before this, had tried to step outside the um, conditions of the oath of supremacy, which meant it only could be ministered to officers of state, but had attempted under an absolutist idea of his own sovereign authority to step outside those boundaries and actually administer the oath to the entire population of people. And when he explains his actions in breaking parliamentary privilege and taking a hard line, he says that... um, his attempt to contail the political freedoms of the old English, she defends with the statement that the good Roman Emperor Trajan, speaking of the Sicilians upon his return from his conquest of Asia, thought that servitude did conserve his citizens and liberty did destroy them. In actual fact, it takes a very opposite position that you'd find a series of reformed Protestants taking in England and, um, and in continental Europe. So, to just briefly summarise, I think that, first of all, Ireland in terms of its disorder, in terms of the inversion of a series of ideas which are seen as normative in both an English and a continental context, actually allows us to raise the question of what really links these together. That first of all, an English stress with Marco Poltonin or Quentin Skinner and others on a particular secular definition of political liberty is not fully correct. That it's seen from many of a Calvinist or Reformed Protestant perspective as really resting on a notion of Christian liberty. And that therefore what explains a resurgent, uh, an emerging absolutist position in Ireland from these Reformed Protestants is that in an absence of Christian liberty, political liberty is negated, and I would argue, therefore, that a theological context or a godly context is far more instrumentalist in the development of state theory in state structures. It doesn't just precipitate, it requires actually them to think about who has rights and to negate those. But then to come to the just final question that I will finish, is that that then asks the question, what is Political liberty, then, how does a notion of political liberty actually fully separate itself out in Protestant terms from a notion of political liberty, which projected through on into James's reign, the Civil War would, would, would give some reason for a level of instability? But I then think in Ireland and in England, in the beginning of a discussion to talk about rights and interests, and in terms of depl- them beginning to deploy an aggressive parliamentary rhetoric, which is different from consensual politics, is a reflection to try and begin to deal with a world which is actually seen as fallen and sinful as a normative set of conditions. And it's that notion of sin or its acceptance as a normal political condition which really informs or be- the development, in some senses, of a modern political sphere. And I think that the example of Ireland, because of its conditions, is extremely important in attempting to explore those interrelationships. Thank you.